0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 9 through 17. This reading may be found in the Pew Bibles on page 224. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age.
1: You pray with me. Father, we bless you for your son. Indeed there is a redeemer, Jesus, your own son. He's the precious lamb of God. He's the Messiah, the Christ. He's the holy one of Israel. And so father, as we preach him from his word today, I pray that you would give us ears to hear his voice so that we may be made more like him and so that those who were not yet his followers may forsake their sin and come to him. Please, be my helper by your Holy Spirit as I preach. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Next Saturday... July 30th will mark the 55th anniversary since then 17-year-old Johnny Erickson, now Johnny Erickson Tata, dove into shallow water in Chesapeake Bay and became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. She was a very active girl before her accident, and you can understand why she hated life with quadriplegia she said quote i hated my paralysis so much i would drive my power wheelchair into walls repeatedly banging them until they cracked early on i found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola i just wanted to disappear i wanted to die end quote A few years after she was paralyzed in her early 20s, Johnny was befriended by some young Christians, one of whom told her that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And God saved Johnny. If you know her at all or know of her ministry, Johnny and friends, you know that she's quick now to regard her quadriplegia as a severe mercy from the Lord something that the Lord brought for her good, something even that by God's grace, she's thankful for. She writes, quote, Throughout my 20s, I became immersed in Bible study with these same Christian friends, mostly character studies about God, especially his sovereignty. When it came to my accident, I had to know whether the buck stopped with him, and if it did, why didn't he prevent my accident? Around my big farmhouse table in Maryland, we'd tackle books like Lorraine Bettner's The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, and others by Martin Lloyd-Jones, J. Gresham Machen, and J.I. Packer. I now laugh as I picture myself with these books on my music stand, flipping pages this way and that with my mouth stick. But decades of study, paralysis, pain, and cancer have taught me to say it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Now, how can Johnny live with joy and gratitude because of an event that meant the rest of her life would be spent in a wheelchair? Well, what's going on in Johnny's story is something Christians used to talk about a lot more than it seems like we do today. It's providence, which is a word that refers to how the Lord according to Westminster, quote, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, action, and things from the greatest even to the least. And so as we survey the book of Ruth today, we're going to see a marvelous story of providence. And I want you, as you listen, to be on the lookout for how God orchestrates the very awful events in the lives of Naomi and Ruth, to bring about their eternal good. And I want to ask you, where do you think the awful things in your life come from? And why are they there? And what should your response, even, maybe especially, to the hard things in your life be? God is going to help us answer those questions in the book of Ruth. Now, I've given to you in your bulletin an outline to today's sermon. And if you didn't grab a bulletin, you can go online to cmcvermont.org slash gather, and there you'll find a digital one. But on the back of this sermon outline is an overview of Ruth. So would you find that with me? We'll spend just a couple of minutes here orienting you to this book before we briefly survey it. Now, if you promise not to be amazed by my intelligence here with the first part of the background to Ruth, we have no idea who the author of this book is, and uh, the audience you see is pretty vague. It's Jews throughout Israel. When was it written? It was written during or after the reign of King David. We know that from the end of the book that Sarah read a portion of for us a few minutes ago. And King David's reign began around 1,000 B.C. So that's around the time that this book was written. What occasioned the writing of the book? What prompted its writing? Well, at least in large measure, it was King David's ascension to the throne of Israel around 1,000 B.C. Why did the author write? You'll see here that I've said that he wrote to tell the providential story of King David's lineage. He wrote to show how God orchestrated events to bring about this great king. And what is the book about? You'll see the theme here that serves as the theme for my sermon today. This book is about how the Lord's divine providence orchestrates seemingly hopeless situations to bring about redemption and a ruler for his people. And then I've given you an outline. The book breaks up neatly by chapters to show you how the theme works itself out in the book. You'll see that it's a story that comes full circle. In chapter 1, we see that Naomi and Ruth need a redeemer. By chapter 4, Naomi and Ruth are redeemed. Now, open with me to Ruth chapter 1. Because I think the whole of the book of Ruth, as I've put in your outline, shows us that in bitter, providential buds can be found sweet, redemptive flowers. But this story doesn't start sweetly. Look with me at chapter 1, the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Keleon died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now to one of the Jews for whom this book was written, the first five verses of the book of Ruth contains profound, profound meaning. Notice first that the story takes place right here at the beginning. We see in the days when the judges ruled. So an Israelite listener to this story from the book of Ruth would have known that that referred to a very dark period in the nation of Israel's history spiritually. More than once in Judges, including in the very last line of that book, the very verse before the book of Ruth begins, we read, "...in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes." Rampant disobedience to God's law, rampant idolatry, internal conflict with strife among the different tribes in Israel, military conflict with foreign powers who were oppressing the Israelites, economic turmoil with foreign nations taking the harvest out of Israel's fields. That's all going on during the time of the judges. And that's when Ruth, the events of this book are going on. And notice, there's a famine in the land. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, chapter 1 and verse 1 says. And you shouldn't read that and think, boy, that's unlucky. You should read that and think, boy, Israel must have failed to keep covenant with the Lord. Listen to what the Lord said to Israel in the days of Moses about what some of the covenant faithfulness, some of the blessings of covenant faithfulness would be and what some of the curses would be of covenant unfaithfulness would be. This is from Deuteronomy 28. The Lord says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes, that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. So the Lord says very plainly to Israel, if you'll keep my covenant, I'll bless your wombs, I'll bless your fields. But if you do not keep my covenant, I'll curse your wombs and your fields so that your baskets and your kneading bowls will be empty. And what do we see in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1? There's a famine in Israel. There's a curse for covenant unfaithfulness. And so, just as you see happen in the latter part of Genesis, when a famine spurs Jacob to send his sons into the foreign land of Egypt to buy grain, we've got four Hebrews, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their sons Malon and Kilion. They leave famine-plagued Israel to go to Moab. They, leave, they live in Bethlehem, verse 2 says, Bethlehem, Lechem, the house of bread, the house of bread where grain baskets and kneading bowls are empty. And they had east across the Jordan River and south to Moab. And these four Hebrews went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And just like the other details in this story so far, that would have gotten the attention of the Jews who heard this. Do you know how the nation of Moab got its start? It's related to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. A man named Lot was the nephew of Abraham, and Lot lived in the city of Sodom. And that city's sin was very grave, the Lord told Abraham in Genesis 18. So the Lord purposed to destroy it and a neighboring city, Gomorrah, because of the wickedness of the people in those cities. But the Lord was merciful to Lot, and the Lord sent angels who told Lot that The city of Sodom was going to be destroyed. And so the angels warned Lot, get all your family out of the city. So Lot warned the two men who were going to marry his two daughters, but they didn't believe his warning. The Bible says in Genesis 19, Lot seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And so when the Lord kept his word and rained down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's sons-in-laws along with the rest of the city were destroyed, though Lot's daughters escaped with him. So Lot and his daughters flee Sodom and they take up residence in a cave and these two daughters, fearing that in their isolation they'll never have any children, made the wicked decision to get their father drunk and to have offspring for themselves from their father. One daughter on one night and the other daughter on the next night and their plan works. The Bible says the younger daughter bore a son and named him Ben-Ami, Hebrew for son of my people. It's the one from whom the Ammonites descended, if you remember that tribe in the Old Testament. And Lot's firstborn daughter also bore a son from her father and named him horribly but appropriately enough Moab, from father. The beginning of the nation of Moab. And so it would be one thing if the Moabites later came to live better than their tribe's beginning, but they didn't. The first king of Israel, King Saul, he had to fight against the Moabites just like King David did. And during the time of the judges, the time during which the events of the book of Ruth take place, you've got a Moabite king named Eglon who allied with the Ammonites. They're still cousins after all. They allied with the Ammonites and the Amalekites to defeat Israel. The people of Israel, Judges chapter 3 says, served the Moabite king Eglon for 18 years. And this is where Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons have gone because of famine in Israel. Are you seeing? Are you getting an idea of how the writer of the book of Ruth is painting the backdrop for his story with the very darkest colors on his palette? Four Hebrews head from covenantally unfaithful, famine-stricken Israel to the pagan, godless, hostile nation of Moab. And while they're there, the family's patriarch, Elimelech, dies. But Naomi, Elimelech's widow, she's not left hopeless. She still had her two sons, Malon and Keleon. Now it's true, again, we're still here at the very beginning of Ruth. It's true that these boys took for themselves Moabite wives. Keleon takes for himself the Moabitess Orpah. Chapter 4 tells us that it's Malon who marries the Moabitess Ruth. And while that intermarriage, Israelites and Moabites, was never expressly forbidden, it wasn't a good idea. The law of Moses said in Deuteronomy 23 that no Ammonite or Moabite could even dwell in the assembly of the covenant people. But no children came from either of these marriages. And after 10 years, the Bible says here in verse 3, or rather verse 4, after 10 years, probably a reference to the time since these four Hebrews left Israel for Moab, the two sons also died. And so here's Naomi. She's a woman in the ancient Near East, without a husband, without sons, without grandsons, A Jewish woman in a foreign land with no hope for her future, no provider for her needs, destined for destitution. Her situation could hardly be more bleak. No wonder when she decides to head back home, she tells the people in Bethlehem when she arrives, chapter 1 and verse 20, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, a husband, sons, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Before you wag your finger at Naomi, just imagine her last decade before she had uttered those words. I mean, how much had they suffered and hungered because of famine before they decided to go to Moab? Certainly you have to imagine that four Hebrews wouldn't quickly go to such a place populated by people who had been only their enemies unless they thought their lives depended on it. And then in ten years, Naomi had been at three gravesides, her husband and both her sons, and her offspring is gone, and the Lord has closed the wombs of her offspring's wives. She's without a provider, She's without, as it would seem, anyone to redeem her from her hopelessness and helplessness. So you can see why I call it the bitterness of redeemerlessness. That's Naomi's words for it. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. But let's now consider the providence of Naomi's redeemerlessness. Did you wince when you heard what Naomi said at the end of chapter 1? Let me read it again beginning at verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them, that's Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman said, and the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Why call me pleasant when the Lord has brought me back empty, and when he's testified against me, and when he's brought calamity upon me. Now let me ask you, does Naomi sin when she drops all her troubles at the Lord's feet? Not necessarily, at least, and perhaps not at all. Like a good Jew, Naomi understood that the Lord is entirely, completely sovereign over all of his creation all the time. There isn't a single event that occurs that is outside of his sovereign control. Nothing, nothing happens that he doesn't cause or permit according to his sovereign good pleasure. As the psalmist said in Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens, he does as he pleases. Or as he says in Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and the seas and all deeps. God providentially governs the enormous things and the most infinitesimal things and all things in between. Now a foolish person could charge me with being a fatalist. Someone who's resigned to some unseen hand guiding everything in the universe in some kind of cold, unfeeling way. I like how Charles Spurgeon responded to such a charge. He said, quote, I hear one say, well, sir, you seem to be a fatalist. No, far from it. There is just this difference between fate fate. And providence, fate is blind, providence has eyes. Fate is blind, a thing that must be. It is just an arrow shot from a bow that must fly onward but hath no target. Not so providence. Providence is full of eyes. There is a design in everything and an end to be answered. All things are working together and working together for good. They are not done because they must be done, but they are done because there is some reason for it. It is not only the thing, that the thing is because it must be, but the thing is because it is right, it should be, end quote. And so Naomi was absolutely right in realizing that though Israel's covenant unfaithfulness was responsible for the famine and likely her sons or their wives' sins were responsible for Orpah's and Ruth's barrenness, The Lord was nevertheless sovereign over all that had happened to her. Ultimately, the tragic circumstances that befell Naomi happened because the Lord willed that they come to pass. And it was right that they came to pass. But while the Lord's providence left Naomi and Ruth redeemerlessness in Moab, It was the Lord's providence also that brought them to their Redeemer in Judah. As John Calvin said in his Institutes, quote, special providence is awake for the Christian's preservation and will not suffer, that is, permit anything to happen that will not turn to his good and safety. And that's precisely what we find in the book of Ruth, isn't it? The providence that resulted in the Hebrews going down to Moab and in Malon marrying Ruth and in the death of Elimelech and their sons, in Naomi and Ruth's return to Bethlehem, all of that turned to the women's good and safety, to borrow Calvin's words. Don't we see this providence at work in chapter 2? Look with me at chapter 2 and verse 3. You can almost imagine the author of this book chuckling to himself when he writes in that verse, that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Do you see that? So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was, in the clan, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Deuteronomy 25 gives instructions for what male relatives are to do when another male relative dies and has no son, which was the case for Naomi's sons. A search is to begin for the next closest closest male relative who's willing to marry the widow to perpetuate the name of the man who has died. The one who plays this role is a kinsman redeemer. And so just when things for Naomi look to be at their worst, Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Ruth happens to go and glean from the part of the field owned by chapter 2 and verse 1 says, a worthy man, and don't miss this, of the clan of Elimelech. Here is a man who's fit to be a kinsman redeemer that Deuteronomy 25 calls for, the kinsman redeemer that Naomi and Ruth need. though I'm tempted to, I'll resist telling all of the juicy details of Ruth's and Boaz's love story. There's got to be a movie in here, right? When Boaz met Ruthie or something like that, I think. But when this providential ball gets rolling in chapter 2 and verse 1, with with tantalizing foreshadowing at the very end of chapter 1, That ball doesn't stop until chapter 4 when Boaz has taken Ruth for his bride and the Lord has opened her womb and given to her a son. And it's all due to the Lord's providential hand. The same providential hand now redeeming the same providential events that brought Naomi so bitterly low in chapter 1. By the end of this book, you can imagine Naomi saying, along with her daughter-in-law's great grandson, David, in Psalm 16, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. By the end of chapter 4, bitter Mara is pleasant Naomi again. Naomi whose story begins in this book with famine and barrenness in a foreign land, by the end has a daughter-in-law who loves her, and worships the Lord with her, a worthy man who's redeemed this daughter-in-law, and now a kind of grandson whom Naomi nurses, a child who was to her, according to chapter four and verse 14, a redeemer, a restorer of life and a nourisher of her old age the bitter buds of providence blossomed into sweet flowers of redemption. That's the story of the book of Ruth in a nutshell. And Matt and Garrett and pastors Caleb and Eric, they're going to unpack all of that in the weeks to come. It's a true story. It's a marvelous story told brilliantly. All true historical events. But if we haven't considered how Ruth bears witness concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, then we haven't let this book do what God the Holy Spirit, who inspired its writing, means for it to do. The Spirit means for the book of Ruth to teach us about Christ, to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures, including Ruth, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So how is it that Ruth bears witness about Christ? I've given you just four ways in the sermon outlining your bulletin. There are surely more ways than these. But first, the book bears witness about Jesus by picturing the bitterness of life without a redeemer. It pictures the bitterness of life without a redeemer from sin slavery. Listen to me, particularly you who are outside of Christ. As wretched as Naomi's situation is at the end of chapter 1, she's an exile in enemy territory. She's got a dead husband. She's got two dead sons. For all intents and purposes, she's dead, or might as well be for all the hopes she could see for her future. As dismal as things looked for Naomi, those who are in need of redemption from sin slavery have it immeasurably worse. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 6 that they were once slaves of sin, slaves of impurity, slaves of lawlessness. He portrays an even more depressing scenario to the Ephesians when he reminds them in Ephesians 2 that they were dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Later in that same chapter, he would remind the Ephesians that they once were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, far off, strangers and aliens. My brothers and sisters in Christ, do you apprehend the awful place you were in before God saved you? I don't care what age he saved you. You were in this place. Now, the Lord didn't give all of you eyes to see, to the same degree, how bad off you were, especially if you were saved early in life. But make no mistake, you were all equally bad off. Some of you were graced to see a portion of how bad off you were, and you would have said, when God brought you low under conviction, you would have said, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, because I'm undone by my sin. how did the Lord rescue you, Christian? How did he rescue you from the bitterness of sin slavery? Well, he rescued you through the bitterness of Christ's cross. He rescued you, he redeemed you by causing his son to drink the bitter cup of the father's righteous anger toward his people for our sins. And though his son was holy and perfect, and sinless, and blameless. Though he was the, the picture of every, everything excellent, the picture of every virtue, total loveliness, the Lord Jesus nevertheless willingly suffered under the wrath that had been stored up for the sins of all who would place their faith in him. No more galling bitterness, has ever been experienced. And he did it for you, believer. He did it because of your sins. He drank the bitter cup until it was dry because he loved you so that you wouldn't suffer eternally for your sins, though any one of them warrant eternal punishment. He did it so that you who were once far off, once exiled, once separated from him, could instead come to dwell in his very bosom, under his wings, as Boaz will say, of Ruth's faith in the Lord in chapter 2. And then the bitterness of Christ's cross became by God's providence the sweetness of his victory over death and hell and the grave. Three days after his naked, bloody unrecognizably beaten body was placed in Joseph's tomb. He vanquished his foes. He was declared to be the son of God in power. He was raised with a resurrection body, imperishable, immortal, no longer a life marked by bitterness and sorrow, but by sweetness and triumph, alive and reigning forever and taking for himself a bride from every tribe and language and people and nation, including From among pagan, hated, idolatrous Moab like Ruth. And because the Father raised the Son from the dead, letting him taste the sweetness of resurrection, you, believer, are able to taste the sweetness of redemption. You've been ransomed from sin slavery. You've been ransomed from the curse of death and from from the curse of eternal conscious torment because of your sins. And you haven't been ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You are in Christ Jesus, Christian, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Sweet redemption, believer. No longer hopelessly, helplessly dead in our sins, alive together with Christ, sweet redemption, hallelujah. I want to consider how to make use of this text for our lives. And first I want to address you who are not Christians. If you're not a Christian, be clear You are Naomi and Moab. For you, it is only bitterness. All those things I said just a bit ago about what Christians used to be, slaves to sin, slaves to impurity, slaves to lawlessness, dead in your sins, far off from Christ, and all the rest, those things are not what used to be for you, my unbelieving friend. Those things are as things stand for you right now. You are right now an object of God's wrath. The Lord Jesus says to you, you are condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You are still in your sins, unbeliever. And if your life is asked of you today, and if a 23-year-old can drop dead of a brain aneurysm, why do you presume upon tomorrow? if your life is asked of you today, if you're outside of Christ, you will suffer eternally in hell as the entirely righteous sentence from Christ the judge because of your sins. Now, some of you unbelievers know that bitterness. I've talked with some of you to know that there are some of you who are under conviction, even as I speak. You know you're outside of Christ. You know you ought not be outside of Christ. And perhaps some of you have labored in prayer even this past week, asking God to be merciful to you and save you. And to you, I say, leave the foreign land you live in, the land of bitterness. Leave the soul famine of your sinfulness and go to Bethlehem. Turn to the house of bread. Turn to the one who was from Bethlehem, who is the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers himself to you for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation and for your eternal life and for the power to live the righteous life that some of you know you want to live and can't. Turn to the one who's offering himself to you for redemption from your sin slavery. Come to him today. Ask him. Ask him even now to give you the grace to repent from your sins and believe the gospel. He's a God who extends mercy to sinners like you. But I think some of you unbelievers... You live bitterly and you call it sweet. Some of you who are outside of Christ are either so self-deceived or you're so blinded by the God of this world that you think that your life without Christ is exactly the life you want to be living. You're not a Christian and you're not troubled about that. And I pray that God would use my lisping, stammering tongue to wake you from your foolish stupor. I'm calling on you to believe that the only life worth living is one where you've been redeemed by Christ's death in the place of sinners just like you on the cross. As our brother Ryan preached to us this past Wednesday night, unless you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, you will die in your sins. Perhaps today but whenever, it will be an eternal death. And so I call on you, unbeliever, to recognize the bitterness of your sinful, helpless estate and repent from your sins. Forsake your sins. Forsake your way. Forsake your calling to shots for your life. And believe the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection for sinners just like you. And then to my brothers and sisters, The words of William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, have been rolling around in my head this week. If you read my email from Friday, you saw the lyrics. Here are just some of the verses from that hymn. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence of famine the death of husbands and sons, the Lord hid the smile of a return to Bethlehem, gleaning in the field of a kinsman redeemer and the line that would result in Israel's great king David and ultimately the son of David, the true Israel's great eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose line we find Boaz and Ruth in Matthew chapter 1. Behind the frowning providence of four Hebrews fleeing to Moab for life, the Lord hid the smile of a Moabitess, a woman from an idolatrous tribe that began in the worst possible way, a Moabitess placing her faith in the Lord's promise of the very same Messiah that would one day descend from her womb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if the Lord would save a Moabitess after how that tribe got started and how they treated Israel, He's telling us that no one's outside of his saving providential purposes. And so, brother and sister, what seems a bitter providence to you this morning? Has the Lord been pleased to bring to you a situation that you would never, ever have asked for? Is it a long term care situation? Is it a hardship that you've realized isn't going to end until you do? Is it a health struggle? Is it a financial struggle? Is it a work trial? Is it a hard relationship situation? You must never think that the Lord brings only the good things in your life, but not the bad things. He's sovereign over it all, and you wouldn't want a God who's only sometimes in control. But you also, brother and sister, don't have to be left wondering what the Lord is up to in your trial. In everything that's in your life, Christian, everything, God is working. He's causing All of it, the wonderful stuff and the indescribably hard stuff that you need his grace for every hour. He's causing all of it to work together for your good. Romans 8.28 says so. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But some of you who are in hard seasons or hard long-term situations feel like you've been beaten over the head with Romans 8.28 people who just kind of do a drive-by, quoting it at you while they leave to go to their relative luxury. And I want to say to you who feel that way, that if you haven't been comforted by the teaching from the scriptures that the Lord is working all things together for your good, don't blame your lack of comfort on Romans 8.28. It's not the Bible's fault. So let me ask you, you who felt like you've heard this truth a thousand times, can I ask you to give it one more listen? Because in that verse, and others that teach the same thing, God is saying that everything that's in your life is being orchestrated by His omnipotent, providential hand for your salvation. That's the only way He works toward His people, for our greater Christ-likeness. That's it. There's nothing, nothing in your life, Christian, that God's providential hand hasn't placed there for your good. And so whatever his providence has brought to you is what he knows will move you along in salvation. So you can conclude that without whatever he's brought to you, you wouldn't be moving along in salvation. And that's a frightening place to be. I quote Spurgeon again. A ship of large tonnage is to be brought up the river. Now, in one part of the stream, there's a sandbank. Should someone ask, why does the captain steer through the deep part of the channel and deviate so much from a straight line? His answer would be, because I should not get my vessel into harbor at all if I did not keep to the deep channel. So it may be, you would run aground and suffer shipwreck if your divine captain did not steer you into the depths of affliction where waves of trouble follow each other in quick succession. Some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you were planted where you get but little, but you are put there by the loving husbandmen because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. His providence can cause hungry, barren women to have a redeemer. He can cause a Moabitess to be in the Messiah's family photo. And his providence, brother and sister, however bitter and hard it is for now, is for the purpose of making sure you'll be like his son when you see him. He's working to make sure you get home. However circuitous he wills the route to be. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, how kind of you. To be both all sovereign and merciful. To cause to come into the lives of your sons and daughters only those things that, according to your divine love and mercy, move us along in salvation and in Christ likeness. Help us not to get twisted up, help us to trust. Help us to know that the good for which you're working all things is our salvation in Christ at the last day. You will surely bring it to pass. Thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for preserving through this Moabitess the line of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we've been saved. And we pray in his name. Amen.